Flashback, summer 2004, Camp Halawasa. It's the end of another week, and I haven't showered. Why not? Hormone-driven teenagers using all the water. As a high school outdoors camp counselor, you're sort of faced to give up some luxuries. I was finally able to look into a mirror, and I did not recognize a face looking back at me. It was depressing at best. With all the muck and mire on my face, my charming smile was all but absent. My blue eyes accented with dark bags and sunburnt skin. My face, as I once knew it, had faded away. What's worse is I feel the same thing is happening to the game I love. The game of baseball looks different, and its makeup isn't flattering. Parts of the game are disappearing, and I'm afraid I don't know what I'm looking at anymore. So, let's talk about it. Play ball! Introducing the Ball and Mitt Podcast, a willy-nilly talk show about baseball, life, and the occasional knee slapper. So grab your Cracker Jacks, sit back, and relax. It's gonna be a doozy. Here's your host, the Bees Knees himself, Brian Brammer. Hey, baseball fans. I am your host, Brian Brammer, and this is the Ball Mitt Podcast, Episode 7. Seven's a good number. It's often referred to as the perfect number or lucky number seven. 7-Eleven was a fun little convenience store. 7-Up is a better alternative to Sprite. Historically, the seventh day of the week was a Saturday when you can relax, sleep in, and grab your ball and mitt, see what I did there, for a good game of catch. There are seven colors in the rainbow, a symbol that was used as a promise to mankind not a flag to wave because one man really likes another man. And of course, there's Seventh Heaven, the sitcom that armed itself with acting and a theme song that would make any person want to throw themselves in front of a train. And because of that, I'm going to talk about seven things that are disappearing from baseball. Not really, I only have five, but I got on a roll. So my main man, Buster Olney, had a discussion with Bob Lee at the beginning of the month in which Buster said this, Parts of baseball are disappearing before our very eyes. He quoted a longtime manager as saying the following, There's almost nothing for me to do during a game. You change the pitchers, and you wait for somebody to hit a home run. You're not doing nearly as much stuff as you used to. You don't even think about doing some of that stuff. A.K.A. He's bored. Decimal points and probability have replaced the risk and reward formula that I love about baseball. You just sit back in your lazy boy chair and wait for a home run, strikeout, or a walk, rinse, and repeat. Now, I don't want to downplay home runs and an awesome pitcher who is just dealing. Those are exciting, but you know, you can only make a roller coaster with so many loops, and a baseball can only fly so far. I recently heard an anchor on ESPN say that a ball was crushed to dead center, and it ended up being a length of about 430 feet. It's a pretty good home run. But yet, the previous game he was commenting on had a home run of 450 feet, but he only used the phrase, smack to homer. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure crushed is a more powerful verb than smacked. I remember one time in high school, I was rude to one of my female friends, and she smacked me for something I said. I deserved it. But are you saying that I had rather have been crushed? So smacked is worse than crushed, according to... Uh, the language used to describe a a home run and how long it went. I hope not, because if she would have crushed me, 
I probably wouldn't be here with you right now because she had a pretty good right hook. Anyway, after chasing that rabbit, all I'm saying is that a home run is a home run, and the way we describe them is not indicative of how far it went, whether it went 430 feet, and the announcer said, that was awesome, or it went 435, and they'll say, that's a home run. Like, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter, okay? However you describe it, however far that yellow stat cast line goes beyond the wall, a home run is a home run. They no longer impress me. A walk is not impressive. And a pitcher's uh, and pitchers are just so dominant, dominant these days that a hitter just tells himself, hey, just swing for the fences regardless if you make contact as long as you look cool doing it. I want to go over five things that I believe are disappearing in the game. Four of these Buster had pointed out. I'm going to leave a link to the website when I post this on Twitter so you can go in and it's about a four or five minute interview, I believe. So you can kind of read through that and uh, get a little more in depth. But And I added the fifth one. He speaks about it a little bit, but I wanted to talk about it a little more because it's somewhat relevant to something else that's, that's going on currently. Okay, so the first one I want to talk about is bunts. Now, I was always petrified when my coach asked me to bunt. I had zero confidence in my hitting skills, let alone my bunting ability, or rather inability. But man, that one time, and I do mean one time, I laid down a bunt to move the runner from second to third was awesome. I sacrificed for the greater good. I feel that I gave my team a better chance to score a run and maybe even win the game. In the last decade, the sacrifice bunt has decreased 50%. Now, to the critic, the response very well may be, so what? Giving oneself up to increase the chances of scoring are so minimal, it's not worth giving up and at bat. Okay. That's fine, granted. But what about the long, high fly out to the warning track? Oh, look, Mom, that big, strong man just hit the ball so far. I know, Johnny, that's impressive. Maybe you can do that uh, same thing when you're older and you're playing men's slow-pitch softball. Same thing with the same result. Just get up there, hit it really hard. If it goes to the fence, you look awesome. If it doesn't, you still hit it really far. And you actually didn't sacrifice anything. It's the same thing. To, to lay down a butt and give up in a bat and then also approach that pitch and just go up there swinging, not caring at all what happens as a result. It's a go over the wall or nothing at all. That's still a wasted at bat. So I just don't think that's a legitimate excuse to say it's giving up in a bat because a lot of batters give up in a bat when they just go up there and swing for the fences. So there's this, there's this presupposition that power hitters don't bunt and to ask them to do so is foolish. It's not even thought about. But I think it's more accurate to say that power hitters can't bunt. And why would they want to? It's not flashy, and there's a chance they'll mess up. It's not sexy to bunt. Joey Gallo doesn't care. I actually think Rangers fans were very appreciative of him bunting recently to beat the shift. Some hold the position that there's a higher probability of getting a base hit by swinging away rather than via the bunt. There may even be a, uh, some statistics that demonstrate that. Okay, numbers don't lie, right? I get it. But liars do misuse numbers. In order for statistics to make sense or to be interpreted, there must be a point of comparison uh, to another set of numbers. Floating stats just eventually fall flat. In my humble opinion, I think if we allowed and even encouraged all players from 1 to 9 to lay down a bunt, we would see something we didn't expect. But honestly, it's a moot point 
because the analysts and front office ubermetric nerds don't want to experiment with that sample. Now, I meant to mention this earlier before the conversation began, but my point is not to convince anyone, although I will try, that one way of playing baseball is better than the other. It's merely just to give a commentary on some of these things that Buster mentions that are disappearing from the game, and also give some of my own thoughts. I don't think any of these things are going to change or revert back to how they once were anytime soon. And that's a, sh- and that's a shame, in my opinion. But it doesn't mean I actually have to like it. All right. Second thing that's disappearing, stolen bases. According to Buster's analysis, stolen bases are down 15%. Now, that doesn't seem like too much, but this decrease does affect other areas of the offense. There is this thing called risk aversion. It's it's used fairly heavily in economics. A risk um, adverse investor is an investor who prefers lower returns with known risks rather than higher returns with unknown risks. Simply put, in baseball terms, if the risk goes beyond a certain threshold, no action is to be taken. And according to probability, stealing a base just isn't worth the payout. Why voluntarily remove potential runs from the bases? Well, I don't know. Maybe because it's fun and exciting. I don't think sports is the venue to play anything safe. Be be a little reckless at times. I live a little reckless. I mean, heck, I had a good job teaching uh, in a university in Seoul, Korea. And I moved back prematurely for a girl. And that's for another time and another therapy session. The thing with baseball probabilities is that they seem to be calculated in a controlled environment. Perfect wind-up, throw, catch, release, catch by the second baseman or shortstop, and tag. Six different actions have to occur perfectly. A runner with slightly above average speed will steal a base if one or maybe two of these action items aren't executed well. But again, teams have stopped doing this for the sake of low risk, and it's honestly a shame. And it's not even risk of being thrown out. It's also the risk of injury. These players are becoming such a large investment that a team has to protect its assets. I completely understand that. There has to be a line in which organizations stop doing this and and, and sitting their players out every third game. This stuff is happening right now in the NBA on a weekly basis. They'll sit every third game because they need rest. I wish I could take a day off from work every week and still get paid. It must be nice. So, something to think about regarding stolen bases, all right? Maybe, just maybe, if more stolen bases were attempted with a successful result, you may see more batters make contact for base hits because there is a runner already in scoring position rather than swinging for the fences because the chances of an RBI are less due to a runner only being at first because they never stole to begin with. Just it's just something it's just something to think about. Okay? All right. Let's take a little pause. I've got a good knuckleball trivia for you. All right? Here we go. All right. Welcome to this week's knuckleball trivia. As I mentioned, I've got a good one for you. I'm going to get a little political on you. Just kidding. Not going down that road actually want to attract subscribers, not chase them away. But it does have something to do with, you know, presidential things. Okay, so here we go. There is evidence. I'm not sure what kind of evidence or where it's located, but there is evidence that President Dwight D. Eisenhower was one of the most well-known public figures that religiously kept a scorecard. However, he is not the only one. There is another scorecard keeper that took up residence in the White House. 
This person was known to keep a perfect scorecard. Who was it? Again, Dwight D. Eisenhower was known to keep a, a scorecard, but he wasn't the only one. Name the other individual who took up residence in the White House that was also known for keeping an awesome scorecard. Remember, I'll be revealing the answer around 6 p.m. Eastern on Monday. I'm going to try to stick to that. I think the past two weeks, I've completely forgot. I did get it out on a Monday. It was well beyond 6 p.m. I do apologize, but that's the time I'm shooting for. Okay, that was your knuckleball trivia. Let's get back to it. Disappearing act number three, the pitch out. In 2009, there were approximately 478 pitch outs. How many do you think we are on pace for this year? 74. 74 pitch outs. When I first read that number, I thought I was either looking at a typo or I had a smudge on my glasses, but no. 74. Now, after looking at the decline in stolen bases, the number of pitch outs isn't that big of a surprise. If teams are not stealing as much, then there's no need to throw a pitch away. Although, I don't consider this is an actual throwaway pitch. I don't like that term. In my opinion, a true throwaway pitch is one in which there was no purpose at all. There are several reasons behind throwing a pitch other than for a strike. A pitch can be used to get the batter to chase a bad pitch, to keep the batter off balance or to to get into their head, to set up a following pitch, to cause a batter to adjust or reposition himself in the box, like scoot further away from the plate or closer, to show the umpire consistency by hitting the same spot, and I could go on. Now, if you remember from last week, I spoke about every pitch matters. It was in the context of making sure every pitch was 100% accurate according to the RoboOmp. So my conclusion to that was every pitch doesn't matter. And I don't want to send any mixed signals from last week and this week. So just because a pitch may not matter doesn't mean there wasn't a purpose for it. The rules allow for pitches that miss the mark. We call them balls. They are there at the pitcher and catcher's disposal. Use them as you will. Now, I know this may be a long trail to follow, but I wanted I didn't want it to seem like I was changing my story. You know how often that can happen in today's media. So talking about throwaway pitches and that every pitch doesn't matter, but every pitch does have an intention, I wanted you to know that those are two separate things in two different contexts. Bottom line is this. Pitch outs have decreased because stolen bases have declined and because of the overemphasis on every pitch mattering and not wanting to waste a pitch. Question is, if stolen bases were to start climbing back up to where it was 10 years ago, would the pitch out increase proportionally? Or is it flat out no longer a strategy worth implementing any longer? And and one last thing I thought about is this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't noticed as many catchers throwing down to the bases to maybe pick somebody off or a, or a runner that's sleeping, catching them off the bag and trying to get them out real quick. I don't, I haven't seen that as often. Is it because runners just don't lead off as much because they have no plans on stealing? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I'd like to hear what your take on it is. Have you guys seen that decrease as well? Could that have been a sixth thing? I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to belong in the pitch out section. Anyway, just a quick observation popped in my head and you guys got to hear it. All right, moving on. Number four, the hit and run. And this is, (laughs) I've got a funny story about this. This phrase always fascinated me as a kid. 
while listening to then Orioles announcer John Miller, called him Johnny Miller, who's now with the Giants, he would say something like this, and it appeared that Davey Johnson signaled for the hit and run, and it was successful. I would scratch my head. I'm like, what is he talking about? Hit and run? I mean, of course, if the batter gets a hit, the man on base would run. That's obvious. Why would the manager need to call for that play? It wasn't until several years later that he understood what was going on. I'm, I'm somewhat of a literal thinker, so don't make me read between the lines. It's annoying and it's too much effort. Say what you mean, mean what you say. So I always thought hit, then run. Yeah, duh, I got it. But maybe if it was called run and hit, I might have understood it more because the runner takes off before the batter hits it in the, in the hit and run scenario. So that's what I thought hit and run was. So it, it drove me crazy because they kept using this phrase. I'm just like, what does this mean? So anyway, I'm 35 now and I get it. Okay, that's all that matters. Hit and runs are down 18%. This number isn't as staggering, but it does fall in line with the swing for the fences or go home mentality and the decrease in steals. With hitters looking to launch the ball into the bleachers, they don't have as much leeway to adjust their swings for contact. They anticipate a fastball and they decide to swing regardless of what pitch actually does come. With this less than disciplined approach to hitting, calling for the hit and run doesn't have the highest percentage of execution. Everyone hates the strike them out, throw them out result if you're on offense. If a hitter swings and misses on a third strike, then at least the runner on base is still safe because they didn't call for the hit and run. Similar to the sacrifice bunt or the bunt in general, I don't think it's a matter of willingness. I think it's the fact that fewer players are able to adjust to just get a piece of the ball on a good pitch in order to protect protect the runner. I think players are reluctant I always have a hard time with that word. I think players are reluctant to swing at a pitch out of the strike zone when it could have been a ball and therefore moving them one pitch closer to increasing their OBP via a walk. Let's not swing for a a ball outside the strike zone to protect my runner because I want to take that ball because it's going to push me further to getting a walk. As is the trend in this episode, these are just some of my assumptions or possible reasons. I'm not saying I'm correct. I'm just... I'm even thinking outside of the box. I can't give you hard evidence one way or the other. I don't know if anyone could, but it's interesting to think about regardless of your final stance. I really do hope the hit and run does not fade into the night as baseball evolves. Now, I'm using the word evolves loosely because I think the connotation of evolves implies progression, and I'm not sure that's the way the game is going. But nevertheless, I can't really do anything about it. Myself and those who may think like me We'll just need to write it out in hopes that this this trend of of all or nothing um, simply fades away too. If it's not flashy, it's not fun. Nothing could be further from the truth in my book. Besides the hit and run is exciting, it's dynamic, and it's strategic. Could you be running into an out? Perhaps. But could you be scoring from first on a double down the line? Quite possibly. Either way, we know there will be a great play at home. But then again, the catcher has to step to the side and roll out the red carpet for the runner sprinting home because that's just the league that we live in today. In the words of Cusco, in the Emperor's New Groove, no touchy. Disappearing act number five, starting pitcher's influence or the lack thereof. Now, I'm familiar with this latest, the latest fad of the opening, the opener. I'm not going to call it a trend because I don't want to give it that much credit. It's a fad. Using a closing pitcher or a very effective reliever 
to start the game rather than a starting pitcher is interesting to say the least. Bullpenning is another term that represents maybe pulling the starter, usually after his second time through the lineup, and going to your bullpen much earlier than history has shown. At that point, you bring in a reliever for different parts of the lineup or just certain batters. Although there were uh, whispers during spring training about this experiment, I didn't really think it was worth an entire episode. I've read about this um, MLB Network. I've seen it around. I'm thinking, "Eh, I just don't think there's anything much to talk about. I just think it's an observation. Uh, some some think it's actually working, but but I disagree. See, one of the popular cases in the opener is uh, that of Sergio Romo for Tampa Bay. A couple of other teams have followed suit, but there is hardly enough evidence to really even make a case one way or the other. I'd say that it's best to revisit this topic for a true full analysis maybe a year after it's been used consistently. And, and I don't think we're going to get to that. But again, I could be completely wrong, and episode 59, which is 52 weeks plus seven, we'll be talking about this. Regardless, we're seeing the traditional starting pitcher become not as influential. Sure, each team has their studs, unless you're the Orioles. Um, No, I'm kidding. We've got Chris Davis. He does okay on the Hill. At this point, I can't say whether this new approach to starting pitching is a good one or a bad one. I can just say that starters are not going as deep as they once did. Maybe sometimes going just long enough to get the win, and then they're pulled. See, I, I believe it's a pitcher has to go five innings in order to get a win. That's barely, that's just over half the game. I think a pitcher should have to go seven innings in order to get a win, and no reliev- reliever should get a win at all. To come in and get three outs to then be awarded a win because of some offensive barrage or a luck of the draw, I just don't think that's a win. So either the starting pitcher gets the win, or there's no win at all. That's just me. But that won't happen. You see, some of you may think I'm a little too old school or that I consider myself a purist, which which I do, more or less. But I'm allowed to have some off-the-wall ideas, too. Believe it or not, I used to think that the DH rule was the best and that the National League should implement it. And that view has actually changed. I don't like the DH rule. However, I don't like how 95% of pitchers that bat will result in an automatic out because they just can't hit. If pitchers aren't going to be allowed to focus on their hitting, then keep the DH. No one wants to see that hot mess, but if even 50% of pitchers were Babe Ruth-ish, then let them hit. Give them a chance in the cage. Let them do their thing. Get rid of the DH. If you're on the field, you're batting. And that is a view that's changed really recently. I never thought I would give that up, but I kind of want to go back to that. I don't even, I don't think I was alive when the, there was no DH. So I'd like to live in a time where there isn't a DH. Anyway, all right, so those, those are five topics, five things uh, I wanted to talk about. Um, and again, this was, more, this was more informational. So I want to reel this in and just let you know that this was a different type of episode. It was more informative than usual, but I think sometimes it's good to change it up and switch the pace a little bit. Honestly, um, full disclosure here. And as I was listening to my opening before the intro song, I, it seems like I'm I'm didn't have a lot of energy. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be open and honest with you. It's been a rough week and a half. I'm not trying to pull a Hallmark movie here, uh, but sometimes in life you just don't have it. I believe I've mentioned my physical health a couple of times, whether in this podcast or on Twitter. 
But in the spring of 2016, I completely tore my labrum in my left shoulder by a combination of weightlifting and playing baseball. So I had surgery in June. I was on oxycodone for about two to three months because the pain was unbearable. It was a full, it wasn't 360 degree tear because your labrum doesn't go like that. It's more of a horseshoe. So it was 270 degrees, ripped the thing, clear off. I couldn't pop my shoulder back into its socket because I didn't have a socket anymore. It just wasn't healing right. So then I had another surgery on the same shoulder in August of 2017, about a year later, to remove scar tissue and to also relocate my biceps tendon so it would allow, so it would allow the top part of my labrum to heal properly. Then this year, uh, due to overuse and maybe a little more baseball, I had to have surgery on my labrum in my right sh- uh, shoulder. This surgery happened right before I launched my podcast, uh, April 24th to be exact. The surgeon went ahead and did the two procedures, so repaired the labrum and did what's called the biceps uh, tenodesis. And this was to ensure I wouldn't need a fourth surgery. And I was, I've been on Percocet for about six to seven weeks, and I've just recently stopped cold turkey. So needless to say, the motivation has been lacking in the crafting and recording of a podcast. The withdrawals uh, were very difficult physically dealing with the pain, but also mentally since my body had become so dependent on such a strong uh, drug. Now, rest assured, I never abused it. I took it as prescribed, but still it was a battle that needed to be faced. I was still on it for a long time. If you know of anyone who is struggling with this addiction, reach out. You don't have to talk to them. Just be there with them. Be in the same room. Let them know that, let them know about your presence and that you're there. It's a very lonely road. They may not say it, but your presence is desperately needed. And if you are struggling yourself, talk to a friend. Heck, talk to me. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You're going to get through it. All right. Thanks for lending your ear. Thanks for letting me lie on your couch and chat with you. But let's wrap this up. Welcome to Three Strikes, the part of the show where I comb through baseball news and find something to poke fun of and try to glean some life lessons. It's usually not very practical, so just go with it. Strike one. Ah, brotherly love. Mariners center fielder Andrew Romine was going up to bat against the Yankees, and his brother Austin was catching. And what does Andrew do? Punches him in the chest. Classic big bro beating up little bro. That's not how it went down in my house growing up. I was out playing sports and my older brother was recording himself broadcasting from the window because he didn't want to get hurt. So to all you younger siblings out there, your older brother is secretly a big weenie. You can take him. Strike two. Speaking of weenies, recently the Phillies fanatic shot a fan right in the face with a Hatfield hot dog using the Hatfield gun. She was taken to the hospital and diagnosed with a small hematoma in her eye. Not sure why they couldn't just say she got a black eye from a flying hot dog. That sounds professional, right? So instead of bringing your glove to your next ball game, warm up those buns. Strike three. The Arizona Diamondbacks, they're offering three healthy choice options at Chase Field this year. Chicken kale Caesar salad, field roast vegan dog, and a Sonoran vegan wrap. I probably said the last one wrong, but frankly... I couldn't give two duck farts. I fell in love with the D-backs because they brought back the bullpen cart. But this, this un-American menu, I, I just, I can't. D-backs, we're through. It's just not going to work. It's not me. It's you. That's strike three, and I'm out. See ya!
folks, that's a wrap. This has been a Ball and Bit podcast production. Take a gander at our website and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Farewell, baseball fans.